When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you have confidence in Rod Rosenstein? Uh, what's your next question, please? The president has just taken his all-out assault on the rule of law to a new level. This is a red line in this country. You can't do this to political campaigns. And I think it's time that the special counsel wrap it up. The, the real corruption was during the Obama administration, not what, what he was doing. When we look back on this in 25 years, we're going to be amazed at how much of it was right in front of us. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man whose tweet writers write ungrammatical tweets in their boss's voice so they can sound like him, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. There was a story about this in the Boston Globe today. Here's how it described the process of getting presidential tweets approved. When a White House employee wants the president to tweet about a topic, the official writes a memo to the president that includes three or four sample tweets— According to those familiar with the process, Trump then picks the one he likes best. So what works if you're trying to get the president to approve one of your tweets? You know, use exclamation points. Another one. Another one. Capitalize random words for emphasis. Use fragments, not complete sentences. Get angry. Avoid logic. Tweet for Trump. It's like teach for America. Except instead of teaching kids, you unlearn everything you were ever taught about truth, fairness, evidence, and the English language. However, there do seem to be some limits to how closely Trump's tweet writers are allowed to mimic his style. Staff members aren't supposed to misspell words or names, for example. And no threatening to fire the deputy attorney general. Only the president gets to do that. And speaking of tweets, coming up on today's show, did Trump break the law or just break with tradition when he demanded a Justice Department investigation over the weekend? I'll be back to talk about it with law professor Rebecca Royfe right after we do the tweets. I hereby demand and will do so officially tomorrow that the Department of Justice look into whether or not the FBI slash DOJ infiltrated or surveilled the Trump campaign for political purposes. And if any such demands or requests were made by people within the Obama administration. What? ever happened to the server at the center of so much corruption that the Democratic National Committee refused to hand over to the hard-charging, except in the case of the Democrats, FBI. They broke into homes and offices early in the morning, but were afraid to take the server. The witch hunt finds no collusion with Russia. So now they're looking at the rest of the world. Oh, great. Now that the witch hunt has given up on Russia, 
and is looking at the rest of the world, they should easily be able to take it into the midterm elections where they can put some hurt on the Republican Party. Don't worry about the Dems, Pfizer abuse, missing emails, or fraudulent dossier. Joining me on the line is Rebecca Royfe. She's a professor of law at New York Law School. Rebecca, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I can't help but notice your last name is the same as Katie Royfe. Is that your sister? That's my sister, yes. So you are the second Royfe to be on Trumpcast. Um, you're, oh. you're, <laughs> wow. Your sister does literature. You do law. Is that, is that the family division of labor? Um, that's pretty much it. My mother's a writer, and I have another sister who's a writer, so it's kind of the family business. Well, um, I want to talk about an article you wrote in a minute, but first, let's just talk about the most recent developments in this case. So over the weekend, Donald Trump tweeted, I hereby direct or I hereby demand that the Department of Justice look into whether the FBI, DOJ has surveilled or infiltrated participants in a presidential campaign. And what he was referring to was the news that was reported that the FBI investigating Carter Page and George Papadopoulos, two uh, shady characters who worked for him during the campaign, had used an informant. And this is what prompted this outrage. Right. That's right. So in my mind, this is an unprecedented and aggressive assault on prosecutorial independence. The president is interfering and directing the Department of Justice to do something that ought to be the sole province of prosecutors. There's a reason why we have prosecutors make these kinds of decisions and not elected officials. Rebecca, before we get into that question, let's just sort of talk about what happened. So Rod Rosenstein, who is in charge of this investigation, responded that in a somewhat ambiguous way, saying that if anyone had infiltrated for inappropriate purposes a campaign, we will, I forget what he said exactly, take appropriate action. So Mm -hmm. you could either read that as... He's responding to the president saying, we'll, we'll do what you ask. Or you could – it also looked possibly like he was just putting him off, saying, well, if there are crimes, of course, where the FBI will we'll find out if there were any crimes. Right. I think he's putting him off. I mean, it's not like this is the first time that the Department of Justice has seen this information about the informant. They knew about this all along. So clearly – if they had thought something inappropriate had happened, they would have already started an investigation. So to me, that seems clearly like a way to mollify the president uh, without doing anything that is inappropriate. So it looks to you the way it sort of looks to me that Rod Rosenstein is 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 pushing this off, isn't going to take any inappropriate action in response to an in- inappropriate request. But the question is, why or how is this demand inappropriate? You've just written this law review article on exactly on this topic. It's called, Can the President Control the Department of Justice? You wrote it with Bruce Green, who's a law professor at, at Fordham. And the two of you examine the whole history and constitutional questions around pretty much this, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly this question. So to summarize our argument really quickly, our view is that this is an illegal interference with prosecutorial independence. 
so illegal. That's a strong term. You think it's yeah. not just a violation of precedent, but actual violation of law. What what law does it violate? <laughs> well, that that's that's a good question. It's a little bit complicated, but basically, there's no constitution. There's nothing in the constitution that says that the president controls um, executive lower down executive officers like prosecutors. And in fact, there's a Supreme Court case, which is Morrison versus Olson, which upheld the special counsel law that had created the position that Ken Starr was in. Right. And in that case, the Supreme Court clearly upholds Congress's ability to create independent federal prosecutors. So mm-hmm. what that means is it's up to Congress to decide whether or not prosecutors are independent from the, from the president or not. Now, there are a lot of people who've criticized that decision, but it's Supreme Court precedent. And so that's very clear. The more complicated question is what do you do when, the, when Congress hasn't actually explicitly said anything? Yeah. The last time Congress said something was the Ethics and Government Act in 1978, and they let that law sunset. That was a law creating the position that Ken Starr had. So our argument in this paper is that when you don't know what Congress means and you have to determine what the law is, um, you one of the things that you have to look to is history. And the question is kind of what, what's Congress acquiescing in? Like, what's the norm? Because if they haven't acted, they're probably just saying everything's okay. So our view, and that's where we launch into this historical discussion, and the historical discussion serves two purposes. One, kind of as a way, a vehicle of thinking about what Congress might mean, and two, just to kind of establish how ingrained this notion of prosecutorial independence is in our history. Yeah, well, let's go to that question. Where does the idea of prosecutorial independence come from? I mean, I assume like most things in American law, it comes from British law. Right. So it traces back long before our country existed. It comes from British law, where it was also um, an established principle in British law. Now it has become, um, you know, it is actual law. Uh, There's no ambiguity in Britain like there is here. But here, the it, obviously, like all British notions, it had to adapt to an American system. So the notion of prosecutorial independence grew with the country, but it grew as the country grew. It grew more important and more fundamental. It was always there, but it gets more deeply built into our institutions. That's the argument that we make in that paper. So what's tell me a little more about the history of that in the early days of the Republic where did presidents try to order prosecutions or did yeah, they? So it happened periodically. And a lot of the scholars who disagree with us about this paper point to these incidents where individual prosecutors directed a particular prosecution. But first, I mean, a couple things about that. One, federal criminal law was minuscule. It was tiny. It looked nothing like it looks today. So pretty much all federal criminal laws have to do with things like um, relationships with foreign countries and piracy and, you know, these very broad concepts that overlap significantly with other presidential powers. So it kind of doesn't mean as much as it seems like it would mean for a president to interfere in an individual case. Right. There's no Department of Justice. All There's the prosecutions no are taking place at the state level. A hundred percent. And not only that, I mean, one thing that I think people don't really realize is that m- most, many prosecutions were, were carried out by private individuals. So you could just say, you know, I think so-and-so committed a federal crime, and you could bring that case just as a private party. 
And so the idea that the president controls all federal prosecutions and that traces to our founding, to me, that argument just can't be made because there was no way the president could feasibly have control over these private individuals bringing criminal cases. So we developed this tradition of prosecutorial independence, that it's the lawyer, the prosecutor who makes the decision about whether a case should be brought and not the president or I assume at the state level, the governor, right? The governor is not in the same way, not to decide that his political opponents should be tried for what they did during the campaign. Is there a distinction, though, between investigation and prosecution? I mean, I I noticed in the paper you were focused on these questions of whether the president could order someone to be prosecuted or not. But what about president ordering an investigation into something? Is that not within presidential authority? And that's a really good question. I think the same um, the same policy that the same values behind our concern about prosecutions exist about investigations um, as well. We don't want political motivations to to infiltrate individual investigations. We want the decision about whether to launch an investigation into somebody, which is an important decision, to be a decision made by somebody who has been trained to weigh the facts and to think very carefully about what the facts are and weigh them along with legal principles and precedent and determine whether uh, investigation is warranted. So to me, while you make an interesting point, and I think bringing a prosecution against somebody is probably more importantly a core function of prosecutors, but investigations are similarly a core function of prosecutors. They occur at grand jury level, and the grand jury is um, a part of the prosecutorial process and one that ought to be conducted according to the norms of prosecution. Yeah. I mean, there's some really interesting and tricky lines here, right? I mean, one of them is between policy and prosecution. You'd agree that a president can set policy around criminal justice, such as saying, as the mayor of New York just said, uh, stop prosecuting people for marijuana violations. That's policy, right? Now, obviously, he can't say don't prosecute or do prosecute person X, who's my friend, for related to a marijuana arrest. But in practice, doesn't some of that amount to the same thing? If you have a policy to investigate or prosecute or, or not prosecute mm-hmm. or not investigate certain kinds of potential crimes, that can have the same impact as, as yeah. directing action around an individual. Yeah. I mean, that's where it gets complex. Obviously, not only can a mayor or a governor or a president set policies for criminal justice, they should. And that's because another important goal we have is to hold prosecutors accountable. And we can't hold them accountable if they're just running off doing their own thing. So we want the elected official to come in and carve out certain policy objectives. And we want our prosecutors to follow those policy objectives. But there's another important value, which is independence. And it is so fundamental and it's so important because individual liberty is at stake. And so, I mean, not to mention holding higher officers to account for their own actions, which is what is going on now. But even if it were just a run-of-the-mill case, it's individual liberty that's at stake. So you're right that there is a gray area um, where individual cases may overlap with policy. So, for instance, I think of um, antitrust as something like that, where you could imagine potentially there being some kind of antitrust case or something like that where 
the president might weigh in. But my view is the president can weigh in, but it's never the role of the president to demand. So if the president went and talked to the attorney general and said, look, I'm concerned about this informant. And my, I mean, not to mention, it's totally normal to have informants looking into things, but I'm concerned about this informant. Um, you know, I have this, you know, very deep concern that the Department of Justice had become politicized or whatever he might say. He can go to his attorney general. He can discuss it with his attorney general and then ultimately leave it to the attorney general to determine what to do or what not to do by drawing on these traditions and practices, norms, ethical rules that govern the way prosecutors act. Well, let me play devil's advocate here. or President's mm-hmm. advocate. It amounts to the same okay. thing. Um, <laughs> I, uh, President Trump, am am really concerned about the interference of the electoral process on any side, wherever it happened. If there if there have been informants used against Democratic campaigns, I'm just as upset about that. And mm-hmm. in fact, the way he phrased his tweet, he did try to phrase it n- neutrally. He said, mm-hmm. if the DOJ or the FBI is surveilled or infiltrated any presidential campaign, he didn't, didn't say my presidential campaign. Right. This is, I think, a huge issue. I think it's paramount to the preservation of our democracy that we not have uh, prosecutors trying to interfere in who voters decide to elect. That's a you can make a defensible case for that, at least in the abstract, right? And he wants this to be the policy of his Justice Department. And if the Justice Department doesn't agree with him, he wants a new attorney general. Because why should he have to have an attorney general who doesn't support the legitimate policy views that he represents? Um, Okay. So, I mean, I think that's a good argument. I think the flaw in that argument is about why, I mean, or the hole in the argument rather is about why this, you know, infiltration sounds like such a terrible word, but the infiltration of the campaign happened. It wasn't at least plausibly, um, it could be because the campaign was going to be a victim of foreign interference, um, you know, of an act by a foreign power. It seems likely that that's what they thought it was when they began the investigation. And who is in the best position to determine whether there were inappropriate matters or, you know, I mean, the prosecutors themselves, they, we have to trust our prosecutors. And that's what's so sad about what's happening now, because a side effect of all of this is that that President Trump has undermined faith in the idea that there are people out there who are seeking truth and that there is truth. So in my mind, you know, yeah, I, I suppose that would be okay if he said, this is a major priority of mine to look into this. And then the DOJ could say, but that wasn't what was going on here. We already have all the facts because we already have looked at all of this material. And, you know, that, you know, this was a, this was a legitimate effort to look into an aggressive act by a foreign power, um, to undermine our democratic system. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the Trump campaign. It, the Trump campaign could be an innocent victim. Well, I think you're right about what the what the FBI was probably thinking. I mean, remember, this is, you know, Carter Page yeah. and George Papadopoulos, yeah. these two kind of clownish characters who the FBI, according to everything we've heard, was concerned were being used by the Russians, either right. wittingly or unwittingly. Right. And I guess, the you know, some of the judgment question arises around whether you tell warn the Trump campaign or investigate the Trump campaign, mm-hmm. what, you're, what you're doing when you try. But, you know, the, the use of informants is 
pretty vexed territory. I mean, liberals like you and me haven't liked that. You know, if you go back to the 1970s and the worst abuses of the FBI, they were using informants to infiltrate the anti-war movement and the Black Panthers and mm-hmm. lots of lots of legitimate groups on the left. And informants kind of have a bad name and a bad history in relation to the FBI. It's not just a neutral practice. Well, I mean, that's true. But I think what you know, it's hard for liberals, and I think part of what has sort of landed us a, a little bit in this predicament, what's hard for liberals to acknowledge is that there are always risks of abuses. And the risks of abuses and even the evidence of abuses doesn't mean that we need to throw out the entire system. It may be that these sorts of institutions, even though they're flawed, are the best ones we can have, we can possibly have in order to preserve the values that we care about. And we need to do our best to unmask the abuses that happen, but I don't think that that's a job of a president, a particularly a president who's in this particular position in, in which he has such an explicit conflict of interest. I mean, and of course he knows this. I think he said in an interview, you know, months ago, I'm not supposed to be involved in the Justice Department. I mean, you uh, you almost have this feeling of like the, you know, the angel and the devil on the two sides where he's, you know, on the one hand pursuing his instincts to interfere, but he, you know, he's either being told or knows that this violates norms. Yeah, I mean, he goes, you know, it's like his whole persona. He sort of goes back and forth. I mean, you know, in that Times interview, he did also say, you know, I can do whatever I want with the Department of Justice. And he's called it my Department of Justice before and things like that. So I think he's made, you know, different, has different, you know, there are different moods on different days. I mean, so much of this reading your article falls into this tricky territory between mustn't and can't. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that what the president is doing, you know, violates norms, traditions, understandings. The world is it's supposed to operate and it has always operated in the past, you know, with certain kinds of exceptions like Watergate. Um, But it's not so clear that he is violating the legal limits of his authority. I mean, ultimately, a court's going to have to decide that if he does it. Mm -hmm. We can't say definitively he's doing that, right? Right. I mean, you know, that's the argument that we're making in that article. But, you know, obviously it is not – it's an argument because it's hard to make. It's not – you know, there are plenty of people on the other side who are smart, intelligent, thoughtful people who argue the other way. So you're absolutely right. I mean – Fundamentally, I think what's more interesting, I mean, this, I think we have a president who's set on doing what he wants to do in order to achieve the ends he wants to achieve. And I think he thinks of law and all of these institutions like obstacles, you know, in the same way as like a real estate lawyer, you know, might consult their lawyer and say, how do I get around this? Or how do I get around this tax provision? I think that's the way he views it. And that is not going to change. What I'm looking at is the institutions and the people in them um, to see how well they're standing up to this, because to me, that's where the main question lies. Um, You know, are how strong all of these, this, this whole history and this whole tradition that we argue in that paper is so strong, how strong is it? And, you know, I mean, a lot of good people who care about these institutions and these values have left. And there are still people there. And I think that there are more people, you know, I think there are layers and layers and layers of people there who care about it. 
but I'm just, you know, I'm watching to see how well they can withstand the pressure. And what do you think about Rod Rosenstein? I mean, he, you know, he did this one very bad thing, which was to provide justification for the firing of James Comey. But since then, he Mm -hmm. seems to be uh, some kind of force for principle. But, you know, partly we want to see him stand up to Donald Trump and respond to a tweet like, I hereby demand an investigation by saying, no, Mr. President, you cannot do it. He is, I I think, arguably wisely instead practicing kind of child psychology with the president and humoring him enough to diffuse him when he's in his his rage, um, but then, you know, not doing anything. At least that's what he appears to be doing. Which, you know, which is the right? I mean, having just argued this principle, do you want to see the attorney general and the deputy attorney general stand up for it? Or do you want to see them kind of muddle through and, and put Trump off? Right. I mean, at this point, from my perspective, what he's doing, I, I feel like I would do the same thing if I were in his position. So uh, what I think he is doing is not compromising his own values and his own professional traditions, but conceit making concessions that he might wish otherwise in the perfect world he didn't have to make. And by making those concessions, he's hoping to protect and preserve those same values. So He's bending with the pressure, but he's not breaking with it and under it. And that, to me, is, as you say, it's one approach. If he went the other way, likely what happened would be he would uh, he would invite Donald Trump to do something more drastic, probably fire him, in which case he's going to prompt a constitutional crisis. I mean, he's going to prompt some kind of crisis where this principle has to be tested. And at, you know, at this moment, I think, you know, he's hoping to put it off. And I, and, you know, one, one doesn't really know without the benefit of hindsight, whether this is the right route, or it would be better to just, or, you know, we're heading there anyway, and it would be better for him to just take a principled stand, force the confrontation, and then allow, you know, the cards to, play out, you know, or, or, or allow things to, to, to play out and see what happens. But to me, that's a really risky road, and he's taking the safer one. I've been speaking to Rebecca Royfe of New York Law School. Her article, Can the President Control the Department of Justice, is to be published soon in the Alabama Law Review, but you can find it on the website SSRN, where all law review articles and other academic articles are found. Rebecca, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks so much. It's been a delightful talking to you. Likewise. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon, with an assist from June Thomas, who helped me record the interview today. Thanks, June. I also want to thank John D. Domenico, as always, our voice of Donald Trump's tweets. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.